Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. again. Happy Advent. We've made it all the way around the sun again. We've made it to that magical time of year where despite the chaos and the, the disorder in our world at First Church of Fort Pierce and at churches all around the world, we as Christians take some time to pause, to, to breathe, to reflect on the coming of Jesus into the world and what that meant and what it still means today. Specifically, we reflect on our deep need for Jesus to come and rearrange our hearts and our lives and our world once again. So listen, I don't need to tell you that our entire cultural obsession with consumerism at this time of year and really every time of year could use some rearranging, correct? How many emails did you have to delete about Cyber Monday? You couldn't count them. But that's only one symptom of a bigger problem. I think that the stress of cooking the perfect dinner, of throwing the best holiday party, of finding and buying the best gifts all stems from one thing, from fear. Fear of not living up to the expectations of our families, of our neighbors, of our friends, of our loved ones, of our kids. (laughs) Fear of living out the happiest time of year, supposedly. Feeling as if we don't really actually belong because we haven't done Christmas the right way. Feeling like we don't belong because, well, we're not good enough. We're the people that people invite because they feel bad for them. We're the people that people don't invite because, quite honestly, we're bad company. See, one of the beautiful things about this time of year is that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, God come in human form. And one of the coolest things about Jesus I have found in my years of reading the Bible is the family that Jesus chose to be born into. Jesus chose the legacy that he would come from. And it's filled with a lot of people who, like maybe you, certainly me, were considered bad company, at least at one point in time in their lives not reputable, not worthy of being remembered, let alone celebrated, let alone recorded in God's holy scripture. You know, if you open your Bible to the New Testament, the first thing that you will read at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel is this list of Jesus's ancestors. Like, oh great, this is going to be boring. It's what's called a genealogy. 
And it's essentially a, a form of writing that traces Jesus' roots back through Israelite history. And some things that are really important to understand is that ancient genealogies, like the one found at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, are concerned with A, only males, and B, they're concerned with proving a point rather than being exhaustive. This means that it's not like going on Ancestry.com and seeing Jesus' entire family tree with everyone included. Rather, the point of a genealogy is to prove to anyone who might ask who a person is descended from. For Jesus, this is particularly important because it traces Jesus' roots back to Abraham and then to King David. But what we'll find embedded in this list is the curious insertion of a few female names, names that don't belong there, not only because they're female, but because almost none of them were Israelites by birth. And so they don't belong there twice. So this means that their very presence here is incredibly important. And so what we're going to find is that all of these women that are mentioned in Jesus' family tree all have a past, all shrouded in questionable or downright sinful sexual practices that should have been excluded from mention in the history books, especially from the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And yet, there they are. So let's check this out. We won't read the whole list of names, but we'll get to where we're going for today. This is the very first words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, In account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And that's our first woman right there, right off the bat. Shows up pretty early. We have Abraham, you know, the man that, that God called and said, I'm going to make you the father of many, many nations. And then Isaac, his son. And then Jacob, Isaac's son. And then one of Jacob's 12 sons, a man named Judah who has two sons with a woman named Tamar. Now, this Judah is a very important character in the Bible. He's the guy who you might remember sold his brother into slavery in Egypt, a man named Joseph. He's also the guy that the tribe of Judah, the line of kings, hence the name for Jesus, the Lion of Judah, would be named after. He's a big deal, but he's not a good guy. <laughs> so this is where we are at. Judah, after selling his brother Joseph into slavery, moves away from his family, starts his own family. And he has three sons. And what he does is he finds a Canaanite wife for his oldest son. And her name is Tamar. Well, it turns out that this son is actually a pretty evil guy. And his evil comes back on him, and he ends up dying. 
And so a thing happens next that's very strange to us, but it was a commonly accepted practice in the ancient world. This is going to get a little bit technical, but hang with me, okay? Because this is a patriarchal society, everything revolves around the oldest living male of the family. Everything belongs to him. And then everything passes from him to his oldest living heir. Women had no status outside of their affiliation to the oldest living male. And essentially what this means for Tamar is that she's property of Judah. So when her husband dies, Judah's oldest son, it is Judah's responsibility to care for her by doing something that's really weird to us. Judah is to make sure that his next oldest son marries her. And so he gives Tamar in marriage to his middle son. And any male children that they might have together will legally retain their right to the family patriarchy when Judah dies because they are considered descendants of the oldest son. Well, brother number two says, no, man, this is my opportunity to secure my legacy for my kids. Now I'm the oldest son. Why would I give all of that away by having children with this woman, Tamar? And so what he does is he decides, I'm not interested in having kids with her. And so he uh, practices a form of birth control. <laughs> and it prevents Tamar from having a child. And then he dies too, just like his brother before him. So now Judah is obligated to give Tamar in marriage to his third son, who, according to Judah, is a bit young for marriage. But really, Judah is a little bit more concerned about his legacy now because, well, son number one married her, and he died. Son number two married her, and he died. I think she's the problem. Couldn't be that my sons are terrible people. So Judah's concerned that Tamar is somehow cursed, that she's wicked, and, and that if his only remaining son marries her, that he too will die and his legacy will die with them. So he tells her to go on home to her own family, and I'll call you when my little son is old enough to marry you. But you know how this goes. He doesn't plan on calling her, right? It's like the first recorded ghosting, right? So an important thing to remember here, though, is that this really messes Tamar up, okay? With no husband, Tamar is really con condemned to a life of abject poverty. Like, like, she doesn't have any rights to any property. She doesn't have any wealth of her own. And her only ability to maintain uh, her own life is at the grace of her own birth family, should they choose take her back. They're not technically legally obligated to her anymore because she belongs to Judah. So in sending away, Judah has committed a grave injustice by scheming to rid his family of Tamar at her own expense. And so that's really the setup of a story that's about to get even weirder. It's about to become a bit more R-rated than it already has been up to this point. So here we go. Hold on to your hats. This is Genesis chapter 38, and I hope you like it. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. 
he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments. She put on a veil. She wrapped herself up. She sat down at the entrance of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah, that's the youngest son of Judah, she saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And so he went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you might come in to me? All right. That's the Bible, God's holy word for you. If you knew that that was in there, you would have read this when you were a teenager. <laughs> a disclaimer about this story and like a lot of stories, especially in the Old Testament, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay for you to go do it, all right? It doesn't mean that's morally acceptable. But look at what's happened here, right? Tamar comes to the full realization of what she probably already knew in her heart, but was holding on to some hope wasn't happening. She realizes that, jo that Judah has ghosted her, right? That Judah had no intention of marrying his son to her. So any hope that she was clinging to that her life might be redeemed in the future is smashed when she sees that Judah's youngest son, Shelah, is all grown up and she hasn't gotten a call. And so what happens next in the story is, is Judah says, listen, I don't have enough money on me to pay for your services, but I'll give you a, a kid from my flock, right? A, a little goat. And she's like, no, nah, man, I know my worth. I'm, I'm worth more than a goat, okay? And so she's like, I need some more collateral than that. Give me your signet ring your cord and your staff, these identifying objects of Judah's. And Judah, he just can't help himself, right? The temptation is too strong, and so he agrees. And, well, they do what they had agreed to do. And Judah departs, leaving Tamar with his possessions, she goes and she puts back on her widow's mourning clothing. And later, Judah sends his friend to pay her and recover his property. But she's nowhere to be found. So his buddy returns, tells Judah, and Judah decides not to drag his own reputation through the mud searching for her. Remember, he does not know that this was Tamar. He just thinks it was a prostitute on the side of the road. And so we'll pick this thing up at what happens next. This is verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, uh, Sir, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the whore. Moreover, she's pregnant as a result of her whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Cool. <laughs> Talk about the irony, right? Like the, the hypocrisy here of Judah. Uh, let's see what happens next. It says, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. It was the owner of these who 
who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, of whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. It's like busted. <laughs> it's awkward. This could be on MTV. <laughs> yeah. And then Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shayla. And then he did not lie with her again. Honestly, I don't know about you, but that was an unexpected ending to me. I don't know, like, if there's some details that haven't been recorded about how much he, like, spun in his mind or tried to weave some kind of extra web of deception to try and get out of this thing. But what the scriptures say is that Judah actually took responsibility. This is where we can follow Judah's example. Maybe he saw the error of his ways, or maybe he was just like, saw that he was absolutely backed into a corner because Tamar possessed his signet ring, and that was an undeniable piece of evidence that something had gone on between them. I honestly think that he had a genuine change of heart because of the words that he says. He says, she is more right than I. Some translations say, she is more righteous than me. The Hebrew sentence is constructed using the verb tzedakah, which is derived from the same word that the Hebrew language uses for righteous. But in this verbal form, the word conveys an idea that someone is to be considered just or innocent. Which is curious in this case because Tamar did something that seems by our modern sensibilities to be wrong, and I'm pretty sure by ancient sensibilities too. She paid back deception with deception. She went and got even. She committed an act of sexual sin, and then she used it as blackmail against Judah. And yet in this case, Judah sees himself as having been the source of injustice. Judah takes responsibility, declaring her as just and as innocent. And this is an incredibly important point because in doing this, he legitimizes Tamar as a member of his family once again. She goes on to have twin sons by Judah and carries heirs to Judah's lineage. And through that, her future is secured. This act of redemption, this admission by Judah that Tamar does in fact belong to him, that she's not bad company, foreshadows the actions of his descendants. See, 2,000 years later, a young man by the name of Joseph would face a similar decision. His fiancée found to be pregnant, and his first inclination was to send her away. It's a story for another day. But you see, regardless of the questionable morality found in this story, both by Judah and by Tamar, we find a resolution to the chaos in the reconciliation found at the end. Judah did everything he could to tell Tamar, like, you're, you're bad company. You are tainted. He spun a web of lies and deception out of self-preservation that caused great harm to Tamar. And healing only came when he finally opened the door for her restoration to the family. 
a door that Jesus would kick down when he arrived on the scene, eternally redeeming her name by placing this outsider smack in the middle of his family tree. Jesus said, oh, Canaanite roots, widowed status, deception, lies, prostitution? I'd like for you to come sit at my table. You can be my great, 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 grandma. See, we have a natural propensity to disqualify people or even disqualify ourselves from communities, from the church, maybe based on the things that we've done in the past or the things that we're still doing today. And the result is much like what we see happened to Tamar. She was sent away under false pretenses that Judah justified by claiming to protect his son. And then, at one point, he actually sentenced her to death. And isn't this too much the way that we operate? We label people as those who are bad company. We shut them out. We contribute to their spiritual death. We've all done this. We all have a list of people who really we owe an admission of you're more right than me. This is a good time to get started on that list, but we also have got to work on not adding to the list anymore. And we do that by rearranging the way that we see other people. I had a friend named Leslie. Talked about him before. Leslie, unfortunately, went on to be with God several years ago, but Leslie was by far the most unifying community-building person that I have ever met in my entire life. He was an Alabama native. He stood about six foot 70, and he was the truest example of a gentle and jolly giant. Leslie, well, Leslie had a way of just being that drew people into his life. And that way of being was like made up of 50% charisma and 50% an unwillingness to watch anyone be or feel alienated. His most famous words were, I'm so glad you're here. Didn't matter if it was your first time being wherever you were or your 10,000th time. And here's the funny thing about that. Leslie was a hospice nurse by occupation. And in his free time, he was a member of a 12-step recovery program. So there's about a 99% chance that if you met Leslie, your life was not going the way that you had planned. You weren't in a good spot. You probably weren't glad that you were there. But Leslie was. Leslie thought and saw people differently. And he didn't just say, I'm so glad you're here. He actually lived it out. He brought people into his life at such an incredible pace that he would fill his entire house on holidays, that when we would go out to eat at restaurants, we would take up an insane amount of tables and throw the entire wait staff into a tizzy. At his funeral, which was in a bigger church than our sanctuary, was standing room only. This was a man who made sure that you knew that you belonged long before you decided that you actually wanted to. 
And this is the type of life that Jesus lived, starting way back in his ancestry. Through his life of eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and into the life of the church that he has made open to people of all nations, races, genders, etc. The fact is this, we can do better. Jesus, Leslie, these people lived to make sure that others knew that they belonged. They lived in a way that rewrote the story of people whose lives were lived in the dark, who believed that they were bad company. They said, you're good enough company for me. See, Jesus doesn't look at the mess of our lives and say, you don't belong here, go get cleaned up, and then come on back. Jesus says, I'm so glad you're here. That's the message of Advent. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So won't you make that the message that defines who you are and how you extend the arm of community and love to everyone from this moment forward? You know, Jesus lived this reality out all the way up until the moment he went to the cross. He surrounded himself with all the people that no one really wanted around. He'd invite himself to their houses. He'd invite, he'd invite them to wherever he was holding a meal. So on the night before he went to the cross, he had a meal. And he invited his friends. He invited the friend who would doubt the resurrection. He invited the friend who just 12 hours later would deny that he even knew Jesus. He invited the friend that he knew in a short hour's time would hand him over to the authorities. He sat in the upper room with all of these fools, doubters, betrayers, deniers, and he washed their feet. And he probably said, I'm so glad you're here. And then he took bread and gave thanks to God. And he broke it. He said, friends, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup and he gave thanks to God. He said, take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant. It's been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so holy God, would you send your spirit here to be upon us? to be in and through these gifts of bread and the cup, that they might be for us the body and blood of Jesus, so that we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, sent out in mission and ministry to all of this world, to shout the good news from, from rooftops, 
from valleys and everywhere in between that Jesus Christ is Lord, that, that Jesus Christ has died, that Jesus is risen, and that Jesus will come again. So good and holy one, come. Restore our hope. Rearrange our hearts. Rearrange our lives. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.